You see, encouragement changes your outlook in the midst of a trial. Now, how does this story relate to what we're about to look at in Hebrews chapter 6? Well, just like Carrie Strug, the Olympian, needed an encourager to press on the midst of her trial, so do our beleaguered believers in Hebrews chapter 6. Now, let's just do a quick refresher of where we left off last time to kind of keep ourselves in focus here. You will recall in chapter 6 that after all this bitter news and the gravity of what he just shared after this third warning passage in verses 6 through 8, the author of Hebrews is now moving towards encouraging and comforting those who are wavering and thinking about abandoning their profession of faith in Christ and going back to Judaism. But they have not done that yet. And so he not only wants to warn them of the eternal consequences of doing that, which he did in verses 6 through 8, he also wants to encourage them to press on. He wants to encourage them to persevere in their faith. He wants to encourage them to stand firm and not waver. And he wants them to have the full assurance of their hope that they have in Christ. And so that's exactly what he sets out to do. So look at chapter 6, verse 9, just as a, as a way of setting this up for us. He said, but beloved, and again, that word beloved means dear ones. It's the only time he uses it in this entire epistle. So he's changing from warning the professing Christians to now talking to true believers. He says here now, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking to you in this way. So now he reaches out to the true believers in the congregation. He wants to do two things. The first thing he says, I want to assure you that I know that your faith is genuine. And he's going to show them why he thinks that. He's going to explain to them why he thinks that their faith is genuine. And the second thing he wants to do is be able to point to them as true believers and say, and I also want to point to you as an example for those who are thinking about falling away, that they should be living their lives the way that you're living your lives. He says, we are convinced of better things concerning you. He's really saying this. Although I have to speak to you, true believers, in such very direct and unsettling terms, we are convinced that your faith is not like that of professing believers who have fallen away. Your faith is genuine. He then sets out again to tell them why. The first reason is what he believes about them. And the second thing is what he knows about God. So first, he speaks confidently about what he did, what he believes about them, and some of the things that they're already demonstrating in their lives that accompany salvation. He's not talking about things that cause salvation. He's talking about things that are the result of salvation. And if someone is truly saved, he's saying these things should be manifested in their life somehow, some way. We should be seeing these things in their lives. And he explains those then in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Now, two things are mentioned as the types of things that accompany salvation. Work and love. Work and love. Now again, work here is not the cause of their salvation, it's the evidence of it. And here, remember, he was pointing back to verses 7 and 8, that agricultural example, when he said, 
the rain falls on both crops, right? Some yield a harvest, and then all of a sudden they start yielding thorns and thistles. And he gives an example that God's grace is shed on all. Some respond in obedience and faith, others do not. When they respond in obedience and faith, they produce a bountiful harvest. If they do not, they produce thorns and thistles. And so what he's really talking about here is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. And bearing fruit is one of the things that accompanies salvation. So if you are truly saved, then these spiritual fruits should begin to be manifested at some point in your walk with Jesus. What are some of those things? Well, you can find those in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse uh, 22, right? Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. But there's another way, he says. So not only should you be showing some of these signs, and the Bible never tells us how much fruit you should be bearing, right? We're not called to be fruit inspectors, right? We're not called to say, well, I don't think you're saved. You're only showing this much fruit. You're only, you're, you, on the other hand, are showing all of this fruit. But the Bible says that these are the things that should be accompanying you if you're saved. These are the kind of things we should be able to see in your life in some capacity at some point. So then he says true, demonst- uh, true believers also not only bear fruit, they serve one another. He said they have this love for their brethren. They have a desire to serve one another. They, and not only do they serve them once, they keep on serving them. He said if your life is showing these kind of things, these are marks of someone who is truly saved. And the author of Hebrews is saying, I know your faith is genuine because I'm seeing these things in your life. I'm seeing you bear fruit, and I'm seeing you love one another. I'm seeing you serve one another, not just once, but continually serving one another. You have a heart for each other. Then in verse 11, remember he said this. He said then, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And so now after assuring the believers that their profession of faith is genuine and not like the professing believers that he warned about, he now moves to point these true believers as an example. He says, I, I want to be able to point the professing believers to you, and I'm encouraging them now to look and live their lives like you, like you do where you're serving one another and showing the love for each other. In essence, he's saying to these professing believers, imitate what these true believers are doing. Those should be the things that your heart is telling you to do. Be diligent about it. Be quickly about it. Move quickly. He said, I want all of you to demonstrate that same diligence. Those who are truly saved have done that because their lives are bearing the fruit of true salvation. And then in chapter, and then in verse 12 of chapter 6, again, this is review, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patient, patience inherit the promises. Now that word sluggish is how he started this whole warning passage, clear back in chapter 5, verse 11. It means dull of hearing. So he said, I don't want you to be like those who have been lazy and sluggish in their faith. I don't want you to be like those who keep hearing the gospel message again and again and again, but never responding. 
I don't want to. I don't want you to be like those who, who, uh, who call themselves believers, but in their heart have never surrendered their life to you. Don't be like them. So I don't want you to be like that. You're going to have to let go of the elementary teaching about the Messiah. And you need to embrace the fuller meaning in Christ. So consequently, those who have not done that do not have the full assurance, and those who are true believers do, and they are truly saved. Now to encourage them to hold steady and to be patient and to remain steadfast in their faith, he now wants to provide an example of what that looks like. He's saying, listen, I want you to do these things, but let me show you somebody else that you're familiar with who actually did those things, and God fulfilled all of his promises to him. I want to show you somebody that you know and what this looks like when it's lived out in real life. And the person he chooses is someone they are very familiar with, and his name is Abraham. And Abraham was a man who had to wait patiently upon the promises of God. And Abraham was a man who was also greatly encouraged by God along the way as he waited. So what I want to do with our time this morning is I want to look a little bit at the life of Abraham so we get the full context of why this is so such a wonderful encouragement to these believers in, uh, in the book of Hebrews and why it is for us today as well. That's probably all the time we'll have this morning since we'll need to prepare our hearts for communion. But rest assured, we'll dig into the rest of the verses here next week. Okay, let's get started here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Let's read those verses again. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promises. Now, Abraham is the key figure in the Old Testament and a patriarch to the Jews and to these Jewish Christians. His story is told in 14 chapters of Genesis, from chapter 12 to chapter 25. He lived approximately 4,000 years ago in the city of Ur with his father, Terah. Terah is descended from the family of Shem, Shem you may recall, is one of Noah's three sons. But like all those in Chaldea, Terah, Abram's father, was an idol-worshipping pagan. But being the son of an idol-worshipping pagan didn't stop God from calling out to Abraham. And so turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Way back. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, his name was not Abraham yet. It was Abram. Abram, which means exalted father. But ironically, his wife Sarai was barren. Now, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So God commands Abraham to leave Ur, and to travel to a land where he has no idea what it's going to look like, 
He only knows that God is going to show him when he gets there. He was to pack up all of his belongings and his entire family and keep moving until God told him to stop. Can you imagine for just a minute what kind of faith that must have taken to abandon everything, pack up all that you own, and move to a land you have absolutely no idea what you will encounter? Abraham's or Abram's obedience was not easy, was it? It was very challenging. Moving in that day was an even bigger ordeal than it is today. And speaking as someone who's moved 24 times in their life, I can tell you that moving is not easy. There's no safety net of hotels along the way. There's no emergency numbers to call if things break down. There's no 911 to, to give a ring to if there's danger along the way. And there was always danger along the way. Because when you read Genesis chapter 12 through 25, the Bible tells us some of the dangers that they encountered. Abram had no idea whether the people would even accept him once he arrived in the new land. No idea whether the land would even be able to support him and his family. He wasn't sure he even spoke the language. But despite all these challenges, Abram faithfully obeyed, trusting in the promises of God. But there were other promises of God as well. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God promised, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promises Abram that he will bless him, and he will multiply his children and make him a great nation. And that through his family line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God would also make his name great and bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. And these promises are given to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and then they're repeated in chapter 13, 15, 17, 18, and 22. Now, mind you, when Abram receives these great promises from God, he is 75 years old, and his wife is barren, without hope of ever having any children. So can you imagine the strange looks that Abram must receive when he's a 75-year-old man, encounters strangers along the way, and tells them his name is Exalted Father, but he didn't have any children? To make matters worse, God made Abram wait many more years before he reaffirmed his promise to Abram to multiply his seed. And we see that in Genesis chapter 15. So turn over a couple pages, and we see that in verses 1 through 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So time continues to march on since God made that first promise uh, to give an heir to Abram. And Abram is beginning to wonder if God meant that Eliezer of Damascus was who was going to be this heir? It sure seemed that the likelihood of no children at the ages of Abram and Sarai seemed like a physical impossibility at this time. 
Now, God had given Abram wonderful promises that he did not deserve, that he had not earned in any way, and he has no means to fulfill them himself. But he still receives them by faith and waits patiently for God to fulfill them. But at this time, he needs a little encouragement. So look at chapter 15 again and look at verses 4 through 7. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body, and he shall be your heir. And he took him outside. He said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him, or credited it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So with great encouragement, Abram continues by faith and waits for the fulfillment of the Lord. But in chapter 16, his wife Sarai becomes a little impatient. And she wants Abram to produce an heir through his handmaid, Hagar. Abram listened to Sarai, and soon Hagar conceived an illegitimate son named Ishmael. Abram, it tells us in verse 16 of chapter 16, is 86 years old at this time, which tells us that he's also been waiting from that very first promise when he was 75 to now when he sees any sort of fruit from, uh, from any seed from his line, even though it's an illegitimate son, it's been 11 years. 11 years since God had made this promise to him. And he's getting discouraged. But then God comes to him again in chapter 17. Look at that, if you will. It's now been 24 years. Another 13 years have passed. Abram is now 99 years old since God promised him an heir. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Not only does God reiterate his covenant promises with Abram, he even changes his name from Abram to Abraham. So he goes from exalted father to father of many nations. Now, if Abram thought he got some strange look when he was called exalted father and didn't have any children, imagine when he has to tell everybody his new name is father of many nations. And yet, he still has no children with his wife, Sarai, and he's almost 100 years old. God even changed Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess. I don't know if you knew that. Sarah's, we got a couple Sarah's in here. Your name is princess. Make sure to remind your husbands of that. Okay. God also gave uh, Abram circumcision as the sign of the everlasting covenant that he had given for him and all of his descendants after him. And all throughout Abraham's life, he waited patiently for God to fulfill his promises to him. And all throughout Abraham's life, God encouraged him as well. And each time he did, Abraham grew in his faith and he waited patiently. He persevered even though he could not see the immediate results of God's promises. 
Can you imagine waiting 24 years for God to fulfill his promise to you? 24 years. Some of us have a hard time waiting if we have to wait more than three minutes in the drive-thru. Can you imagine? 24 years. And you know in your heart that God's word is true. And you know in your heart that he is going to fulfill that promise. But God grows us in these times, beloved. He grows us in these times because we can't, some things are out of our control. Some things are beyond the things that we can fix ourselves. Many of you here in this room have been praying for loved ones or children to come to faith. And you've been doing it for years and years and years. And sometimes, by the grace of God, we get to see that in our lifetime. And all of a sudden, our children are saved, and they start coming to church. And you're thinking, praise God. What a wonderful blessing that is by his grace to be able to see that. Sometimes we don't get to see that in this lifetime. Did you notice that it also says he waited patiently? I want to remind you that patience, well, patience may not be the fruit we bear all that often in our lives. But did you know that patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit? We seem to kind of remember all the other ones. We skip right over that one in our little song. But patience is one of the marks of a true believer. Abraham or Abraham grew in his faith as time marched on, and eventually in God's perfect timing, Abraham saw God fulfill his promise, and Isaac was born. Isaac's name means laughter. Isaac was the child that God had promised 24 years ago. And God gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac through a barren woman to demonstrate that he and he alone was the only one who could fulfill a promise like that. In fact, not only was he the only one who could fulfill it, he was the only one who could provide all that was necessary for that promise to be fulfilled. It was not through the will of Abraham that God's promises were fulfilled. It was not by some secret octogenarian root or herb that Abraham discovered that all of a sudden allowed Sarah to become uh, pregnant and bear a child. No, it was God and God alone who fulfilled every aspect of this promise. And that's very important for us to remember as we begin to unpack this next section. Because God is saying through the author of Hebrews, I want you all to have assurance of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And so when you read God's word, I want you to know that you can have the assurance of your faith because God is the one who is going to secure that those promises will come true. It's not up to you. It is God and God alone who will fulfill his promise to you. That's very important. I want you to know one more thing about Abraham before we finish this morning. When Abraham died at age 175, he had indeed fathered several nations. Through Ishmael's descendants and through the sons that he had with Keturah, he also had two twin 15-year-old grandsons, Jacob and Esau. 
He didn't own any vast amounts of land. The only land he owned was a cave he had purchased for the burial of his wife, Sarah. And even though Abraham didn't see all of God's promises come to pass in his own lifetime, the Bible tells us, and history validates, of course, that God's promises came true for Abraham. His name had been made great through God's holy word. We're still talking about his name today, 4,000 years later. We know his whole story. And his descendants, both his physical descendants and his spiritual descendants, are indeed as many as the stars in the heaven and the the sand on the seashores, just like God said. Here's the lesson for us so far in this text. God wants us to trust him completely, and he wants us to wait patiently in faith for him to fulfill his promises to us. God may delay the visible answers to his promises because he always answers in his perfect timing, not ours. We may not even see all the answers until we're in heaven, but he is utterly trustworthy to keep his word. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself, and he cannot act in, uh, out of accordance with who he is. It is impossible for God to do that. He is utterly trustworthy to keep his word. And our faith, our assurance of hope, is rooted in him. That's where you have the security of your faith, is in who God is. I am so thankful that my salvation is not based upon my faithfulness but is rooted in God's faithfulness. And then when God tells me in the midst of my trial, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that it's impossible for him to do that. If he said he's going to do that, then he will do that. And I can trust in him and his word. Some of you are going through trials right now in your life. Some are physical, some are emotional, some are spiritual. trust in God and wait patiently for his promises to come true. This story of Abraham is in the Bible for us. It's a reminder to us of an example of a man who had many, many challenges. And what seemed like an impossibility in his life, God secured just to demonstrate that he is God and he is gracious and that he keeps his promises. Sometimes we may be discouraged as we wait for God to answer, but God uses those times to grow us closer and more dependent upon him. Isn't it amazing when you finally get to a trial that you can't fix yourself, how you immediately cry out to God? What God desires is that you don't wait until that point, but that you keep trusting him and waiting patiently for him to fulfill his promises. God will always find a way to encourage our hearts while we wait patiently. It may be a specific message. It may be a specific passage. It may be another believer he brings into your life. Trust in him. And that encouragement that God brings changes our outlook in the midst of a trial. 
It did for our Olympian, Carrie Strug. It did for Abraham. It will do for you as well. I'm going to ask the men to come forward if they would.